Tonight, we're sort of jumping in where we left off last week and uh, finishing out, hopefully, chapter... What is it? Finishing out chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. First Thessalonians chapter one. Got it? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Rising above mediocrity and impacting your world. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, I, I tell you what, just to sort of set the table again, turn back first to Acts, <coughs> Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17. and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, 
And after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So you can see what a tough place Thessalonica was uh, for the gospel. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we do not need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. According to USA Today on Wednesday, November 23rd, 1994, a husband and wife by the name of Sandy, Sandy being the, the husband, and Teresa boarded TWA flight 265 in New York City to fly to Orlando in order to visit Disney World. Teresa was seven months pregnant at the time. And 30 minutes into the flight, she doubled over in pain and intense labor started. Uh, flight attendants announced that uh, they needed a doctor and a Long Island internist stepped forward and volunteered his services. Uh, Teresa soon gave birth to a boy, but the boy was in trouble immediately. The umbilical cord was wrapped tightly around his neck, and he wasn't breathing, and he was blue. Among the passengers were two paramedics who rushed forward to help. One of them just so happened to specialize in infant respiratory procedures. He asked if anybody had a straw, which he wanted to use to suction fluid from the baby's lungs. The plane didn't stock straws, but a flight attendant remembered that she had a straw left in a juice box that she had brought on board the plane. The paramedic inserted the straw into the baby's lungs as the internist administered CPR. The internist asked for something he could use to tie off the umbilical cord. A passenger offered a shoelace. Four minutes of terror passed. Then the little baby whimpered. And soon the crew was able to joyfully announce that it was a boy and everybody began clapping and cheering. And the parents named the little fella Matthew, which means God sent. 
The father commented, the people on board the plane were all God's sins. And indeed, God had met the need through people who gave what they had and did what they could. Now folks, what an image of what the church is supposed to be like. A group of people who all have something different, different spiritual gifts and resources to bring to the table. Now, last week we began looking at this church, uh, the church at Thessalonica, and it's a church that was far beyond just average. And we saw some of what made them uh, so exemplary last week. Uh, I hope that you remember some of the things that we went over. We saw, first of all, that they were an energetic church. In verse 3, he says, We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked last week about here they were commended for three different things. They were commended for their work of faith. And we talked about how men will work for, you know, there's many reasons that men will be motivated to work by. Uh, they work because of their faith. They had a faith that works. Good works do not gain you faith and acceptance with God. But genuine faith results in good works. In other words, as I said last week, good works are not the root of our salvation, but good works are to be the fruit of our salvation. They were also commended for their labor of love. They loved the work of the Lord. It was not tedious nor tiresome. They were not like the people in the book of Malachi who in, in the last book in the Bible, the people were looking at God's work. They were going and doing God's work, but they had no joy, no pleasure in it. And they were just kind of like, oh, how humdrum and tedious this is. And God said to them, I wish one of you would just go and shut the doors of the temple and not even come into my house to profane it. But the Thessalonians were not like that. They... They were engaged in a labor of love. It was thrilling for them to be involved with God in God's mission. They recognized there's nothing greater they could do with their lives than serve the Lord. Well, they were also commended for their steadfast hope. Remember, Thessalonica was a very difficult place to serve. It was filled with tribulation, hardships, persecution, and yet they were steadfast. The hope that they had in Christ kept propelling them forward. So again, we see something about how they served the Lord, uh, the spirit that they did so in. Well, secondly, I want you to see tonight uh, from verse 4 that they were an elect people. He says in verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has elected you or chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. 
Folks, there was a deep abiding assurance on the heart of the Apostle Paul. He expresses it here. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt of God's choice of them. Now what he's speaking of here is election. Uh, people come out of different denominations, different traditions and backgrounds, and sometimes the doctrine of election raises all sorts of questions in people's minds. But we have to affirm it because it is a biblical doctrine. In fact, it's mentioned quite a bit uh, in the Scripture, and it runs throughout Scripture. We see it beginning with God's call of Abraham. While Abraham was still in a foreign land, Ur of the Chaldeans, he was a pagan, worshiping pagan gods. And God called him and set him aside and promised to build a nation through him. Later we see it again with the choice of Israel out of all the nations of the earth. They were God's treasured possession, as the Bible says, and they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now in the New Testament, this language is transferred from Israel to the church, where Peter says in 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen generation and a, and a royal race to sing God's praises. I want you to turn with me back to John 17 a moment. John 17. In Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, verses 1 and 2. says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. And then over in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, Acts 13, begin to pick up reading in verse 46. It says, Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. In verse 48, listen to this. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The Greek there is pretty amazing. As many as had been appointed believed. It's not that they believed and so then they were appointed. They were appointed and because they were appointed, they believed. And then over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, This is why I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. 
folks far from 2 Timothy 2 10. Folks far from hindering evangelism, election actually should motivate evangelism. God has not only chosen people, but he has also determined how they come to believe. He has appointed how the elect get saved. It is through the preaching and sharing of the word of God. And so the doctrine of election essentially says to the evangelist, keep on doing what you're doing because it will succeed. Not everybody will believe, but some will believe. Now, some try to say, well, God elects those who in his foreknowledge he knows will choose him. Well, that position would actually completely nullify election. If God only elects those who choose him, then election essentially or virtually becomes meaningless. The doctrine of election, though, is given in the Scripture almost always for practical purposes. Election fosters assurance. It's meant to be a wonderful assurance to the child of God. Because long before you were thinking of God, God was thinking of you. Long before you loved Him, He loved you. We love because He first loved us, as John says in 1 John. In Jeremiah 1, the prophet was told by God, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and appointed you the prophet to the nations. Folks, the doctrine of election is a wonderful doctrine. And the way I look at it is God's great big loving arms wrapped around you saying, I love you. I'm your heavenly father. I've chosen you. You belong to me. That's what it says to us. Not only does it foster assurance, it fosters holiness. It fosters holiness. It's meant to give us pause at the way that we live. Are we living worthy of those who have been chosen? We've been chosen, the Bible says, to be joint heirs with Christ. Amen. But so often, instead, we live as those who were nothing more than joint heirs of a garbage dump. Election is meant to cause us pause at the way we are living. Are we living as a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Election also fosters humility. As Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, uh, Paul, talking of God, says in 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us, with a holy calling, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Folks, the fact that God even saves one is grace. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one earns it. No one deserves it. If God 
only saved one in the world, that's grace. Because if God gave us what's coming to us, we would all be lost. Some people try to tell themselves that there must have been something about them that made God look their way. That's false. Our salvation is all about God and God's grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. And the only explanation we're ever given in Scripture about God's election is, is His love. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8 says, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. He chose us because He loves us, and He loves us just because he loves us. He doesn't love us because we're lovable, but only because of His love. And folks, with that mystery, we've got to be content. Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon on one occasion how he reconciled election with the free will of man. And Spurgeon commented that he never tried to reconcile friends. They're not contradictory truths. They're complementary on our side of heaven's door is the invitation. Whosoever will may come. When we walk through the doorway, the archway into heaven and look back, we see the words written above the archway. Welcome you who were chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. Now while election is a mystery known to God alone, evidence of it abounds in a person's life. And that's what Paul goes on to say here about the Thessalonians. Election is evident in a life. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you for, and then he goes on to explain why he is so certain of their election. What evidence is there? He says there in verse 5, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. Let's break this verse down a little bit. Yes, it came in word. As I said earlier, far from making evangelism unnecessary, Election makes it essential. It is through the preaching of the Word of God that people come to saving faith in Christ. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10 says. The gospel has a specific content and it is articulated. It is communicated. But the preaching of the gospel, Paul says here, is not words only. Notice Paul said it didn't come to you in word only, but what? Also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know, folks, there's something very special and something very unique about the preaching of the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on in that chapter to say this. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's why Paul said to Timothy what he did in 2 Timothy 4. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Folks, when the gospel went to Thessalonica, it made an impact. It brought conviction. They believed the message. God saved them. God worked in their hearts through the message delivered, which Paul says proved God's choice of them. Those who believed proved God's prior choice of them. And that says something to you and me. When the Word of God is preached, God's favor is being held out. And that's why the Scripture says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Because as the Word is preached, something wonderful is happening. God is calling to you. Can you hear Him? He's speaking to you through His Word. People say, I just want God to speak to me. Well, open your Bible and read. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Through the Word of God, God is allowing you and me to hear His good news. <laughs> Folks, you can meet with God on the pages of your Bible. It's His message. It's His love letter to us. 
God will minister to you if you'll only open your eyes and open your ears. And then thirdly, Paul says of them here that they were an exemplary people. An exemplary people. He says, you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Paul is continuing to explain in these verses how he is confident of God's choice of them. How is he so confident? How did they become such sterling examples? Well, first of all, he says in verses 6 and 7, they received the word in spite of hardship. They received the word in spite of of hardship. The gospel came to them in word and in the power of the Holy Spirit who brought conviction to their hearts and they embraced it. They received it. They welcomed it. Now the word that's used here was a word that was used of honoring or welcoming a guest. Ladies, you know what you do if you're expecting company, right? You clean the house. Probably put a pie in the oven and a pot of coffee on. You set a table. You're ready to welcome your guest. You give hospitality to your guests. And the word Paul uses here is that's what the Thessalonians did with the Word of God. They gave it hospitality. They welcomed the word. They, they didn't just hear it and it produced a, a yawn. They didn't just receive it either as the words of men. They received it for what it is. It's the word of God. 2 Peter 1 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God used men to write the Bible, but it's His Word. And they received it as such. They, the Thessalonians received it as God's word. And in verse 9, Paul talks about how it changed them. What did they do? They turned to God from idols to serve the living God. Right? They were a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? 
Remembering Christ, these new creation, old things have passed away, and all things have become new. Very good. Exactly. Folks, that's what Christianity is all about. We hear the message, come under the conviction of sin, our need for a Savior, we open our hearts to Him, He changes us. That's authentic Christianity. There's a life change. John said in verse John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. <coughs> There's a life change. <coughs> They were an example because as Paul looked at them and saw the change that God's Word made in them, he, he was able to see a different sort of people than they were before. They were now examples to everybody of what authentic Christianity looks like. And even though they experienced persecution in their city because of the Word of God, they received it with great joy. Joy of the Holy Spirit. Even though to do so cost them greatly. It cost them. And yet they received it with joy. They were like the apostles in Acts 4 that says they considered a privilege to be able to suffer for the name of Christ. <laughs> I want you to think about the impact that the Thessalonians would have had on their city and on their culture. Because what happens when lost people see you but you're different from how they remember? You're completely different the way you live. You're not involved in whether it's a filthy mouth or drunkenness or whatever. Maybe how people knew you before you were saved. Now they see somebody that it's like, who are you? They see the change. And when they see that and then they hear you tell them why, they can't deny the gospel's power in your life. You know, it's sad that too often, though, the world just sees us carrying on like anybody else. Right? People, if you're born again, people need to see evidence of that in your life Amen. and in my life. And people need to see our joy of having received the Word and been changed, been converted. Paul says, having this kind of attitude, he said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. They were like Jesus. They were like Paul. Jesus faced hardship. Paul faced hardship. But both Jesus and Paul faced it with joy and welcomed God's word. Not only were they imitators of Jesus and of Paul, but he says, you were examples to others. 
Folks, we live in a world today where people need to see good Christian examples, don't they? The world needs to see us being honest at work. Even when every now and then, cutting corners or telling a little lie might make your life a little easier in the office, right? But you don't do that. You're honest. You don't cheat. People need to see the difference in a Christian marriage. And the Thessalonians were like that. They were changed and people were seeing now their example. But Paul's not done yet. In verse 8, he talks about how they became an example in the fact that they trumpeted the gospel. They trumpeted the gospel. Sounded forth the gospel. That, that phrase, sounded forth, is used only here in the New Testament. And, it, and it's a word that literally means to trumpet, to make loud and clear the sound. It was used of blowing a trumpet. It was also used of a clap of thunder. The idea is clarity and loudness. And so he says, For the word of the Lord rang out from you, sounded forth from you, trumpeted uh, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Now folks, don't miss the pattern here because it ought to be the normal pattern. They heard the word. They embraced it. They welcomed it. They gave it hospitality in their hearts. They became examples and how they themselves lived it out, and then they turned right around, and then they sounded it forth to other people. That ought to be the normal pattern. We hear it. The Holy Spirit uses it to change us. It changes our lives, and then we turn around, and we share it the way it's been shared with us so it can impact others. Discipleship. Discipleship, exactly. And that's, that's the challenge right there. We're to hear it, embrace it, live it out, and then share it. Remember what happened with the Gerasene demoniac in verse five, uh, uh, chapter 5 of Mark? When Jesus saved him, he was a different man. He was clothed and in his right mind. He wanted to follow Jesus. What did Jesus say to him? Now you stay here and go to your people and tell them right here all the great things God's done for you. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, he said, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and then entrust to others reliable men what you've heard and been taught so that they in turn will be able to entrust it to others, the discipleship process. Folks, if we never share the hope we have in Christ, what kind of examples are we being? Not a very good one. Not a very good one. 
When it comes to sharing, remember Jesus said, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Like James Kennedy used to say, if you're not somewhere along the process of being a fisher of men, then who are you following? You're not following Jesus because Jesus said, if you follow me, here's what I'm going to do in your life. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Some lessons I want to close with tonight. Lesson number one, God's unmerited election and grace is all that can explain our salvation. God's unmerited election and grace is all that can explain our salvation. Lesson number two, salvation gives evidence and fruit in our life. True salvation gives evidence. There's evidence of it and there's fruit in our life. And then the third and last lesson, the saved are to be messengers of God's grace to others. Now, I want to read the passage again and close with this because, again, it's such a powerful... To me, this is one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament. Verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that He has elected you or chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen? Amen. Amen. Any comments? Pastor Scott. Uh-huh. I've struggled with this before about election and free will. And I remember a few years ago you did a series through the different doctrines and you had some videos with it. Right. And I remember one, one of the videos the guy said, you know, you may struggle with election and but he said the biggest uh, witnesses in the New Testament were Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, and both of them, you know, really understood election, but it did not stop them from going out and sharing the gospel. Exactly. That really kind of helped me. Yeah. Uh, I, again, instead of being a deter, uh, uh, a determinant of sharing the gospel, it's a motivation. 
Did I say that right? Deterrent. 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 <laughs> what did I say? Determine. Deterrent. Instead of being a deterrent, it's a motivation. Probably. Instead of a, I was getting too many words compacted in my mind. Uh, because again, uh, the scripture tells us God's means of people of the elect coming to faith in Christ is the preaching of the world. And so it gives us assurance to go out and spread the word knowing that God does have those that he's chosen. Not everyone will believe just like the parable of the soils teaches us, but some will. God has his chosen. And so it's a motivation uh, knowing that he uses us and our witness to bring these people to faith in Christ. Um, so affirming the doctrine of election, uh, again, ought to motivate people to get out and share more. John 3.16 says he loves the world and gave his only son. So to me, he's chosen everyone. But at that point, he's given the choice of everyone to choose him back. So he knows who's going to choose him back. He's appointed those with spiritual gifts and with a calling to further the message. But I still think in my heart that he's chosen everyone because otherwise he would have given his son to die for the entire world. But he gives us the free choice to choose him back. I think that's the difference. Well, remember also what he said in John's Gospel. In John 6, uh, in John 6, for example, in that chapter, he told some of them, the reason you don't come to me is because I haven't chosen you. Um, you're, you're not mine. I haven't chosen you. And that's why you don't come to me and believe. And again in John 17, Father, I'm thankful that those whom you've chosen and given to me have come to me. Again, it's a mystery we don't understand fully. But it's something proclaimed over and over and over in different parts of the Scripture. And I'm just scratching the surface of it tonight. And again, it's not that he simply chooses those that he... that he saves those that in his foreknowledge he knew would choose him. Because that would render the doctrine of election unnecessary and meaningless because God would be in that case just responding what he knows you're going to do with him. Again, as Paul said there in Acts 13, those who have been appointed to eternal life believed. In the Greek there is very specific. Again, it's not they believed and as a result of their belief, they were appointed. God appointed them. That was first. Because God had appointed them, they believed. Anyway, it's, it's a mystery. But does that mean that we're not responsible for, for choosing? Of course we're responsible. 
That's why Spurgeon said he doesn't try to reconcile friends. We, we see both elements in Scripture. God's election of us and then our responsibility to repent and believe. We see both, that, that tension in both. Um, everybody thought uh, Roger, Roger Jackson, he couldn't be elected because he was, he, uh, he was so sarcastic about things of uh, God for years and years. They had, uh, you know, uh, seminary graduates and all, all these people talking to him and he was very hard and he could, he was self-made guy. He uh, ever, everywhere from evil scout to scientist. He was a scientist at uh, the electronics school, the Army Electronics School at Fort Monmouth and everything. And he just, you know, pretty much everybody, you know, just gave up on him, including, including uh, I didn't even know the guy. Uh, I knew, I knew his family. Uh, but anyway, one one day came and pastor says, uh, Mr. Jackson. He needs, uh, he, uh, he needs somebody to visit because I can't make it to go over and talk to him. And I'm thinking, oh, no, not me, not me. Give me somebody normal, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking, this guy, uh, you know. But you mentioned about the, the, the power of gospel. I, that's why I, <laughs> I know what's in me. Because, uh, you know, I didn't know that much about, you know, scripture. But... I get over there and he's asking all kinds of questions. There are all these questions. I'm doing the best I can. I was trying to do with scripture that I knew. And they were deep, deep, deep but question. He was very sick. And uh, so he, he made a, a profession, but the profession was matched with this changed life. And that's incredible because Nobody could believe that he got saved, and yet, yet he started to come to church, and he was very, he, he changed, you know, it just, you know, blew everybody away. Yeah. You know, he, he even went to the, uh, while he tried to get better, he went to church a couple months, and he went to that place in uh, the Mild Clinic in, in uh, Minnesota, but it uh, didn't make it. But I believe, you know, he would have just kept going had the Lord allowed him to live, live, live but just to, you know, it, it, so he, nobody would thought he would be elected. If he was going to be elected, but he, he had to be elected because it was real, you know, it was real. And it had to be the gospel. It wasn't me. I didn't even know him. You know? Nobody sitting in church who's a Christian needs to doubt and say, hmm, Maybe I'm not among the chosen. No, the very fact that you're a believer is proof positive you're among the elect. You're chosen. Nobody has to sit in church who's a Christian thing and, and doubt in the least little bit. Am I among the elect? Yes, you are. Why? How do you know? Because you've accepted the gospel and turned your life over to Christ and you're in church worshiping Him and praising Him. Mm -hmm. Evidence that you're among God's elect. And uh, keep in mind the scripture says we were spiritually dead. We weren't sick. We weren't in the ICU on a breathing machine. We were dead. What can dead men do? What can dead men do? Tell them tales. Hmm? Tell them tales. 
Tell no tale. The Bible says we were spiritually dead. God had to initiate. God had to re regenerate us and call us to faith and repentance. Because we were dead. And dead men can't do anything. Uh, somebody described salvation one time in a very incorrect way. Incorrect way. They said, I was like a man lost at sea, floating with my life jacket on out in the middle of the ocean, nothing around me, and I heard dum 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 helicopter, Coast Guard coming in the distance. And I was waving my arm. Here am I. That works. Here am I. And they finally saw me and they came and rescued me. No, that's not it at all. You were on the bottom of the ocean, 300 feet down, and you were dead. through some type of radar, they saw you and went down and got you and lifted you up and did CPR and breathed life into you. Because um, you were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. God had to initiate. God had to be the one initiating and driving the whole thing. And regenerating you. Because otherwise, you'd stay dead. Ephesians 2 is very clear. It says, By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Uh, again, the, the, the phrasing and, and so forth, the gender and phrasing and tenses of the, of the Greek in that passage is that What's the gift of God? Everything. Even the faith to believe is God's gift to you. For by grace are you saved through faith and this not of yourselves. What is it that God did for you? Gave you even the faith. Mm -hmm. It's very clear in that passage. Hmm? Oh, my unbelief. Yeah, yeah. So again, who's responsible for your salvation, my salvation? Is it 90% me, 10%, I mean, 90% God, 10% me? No. Is it even 99.9% God and 0.1% me? No. It is 100% God. And that's the gospel that God would do that for somebody that doesn't deserve a single outside. You know, when you put it like that, people tend to hold that gift to themselves and don't want to share it with anybody. You want now? I'm sorry. And to say what you just said, and to know that people are willing to hold it against themselves tight to their chest and not want to share it with anyone. And that's that's, that's a shame. Yeah. That's a shame. That's a travesty. Yeah. 
Adrian Rogers always said, there's no secret service Christian. They were not secret service Christians. You see it here in these verses. Yeah. By the faith, their labor of love. Sure. And they weren't saved because of it. Boy, it did help throw from them. And in verse 8, that's an ongoing. It wasn't just the one time I'm telling my neighbor. It was a way of life as they went. Yeah. Every day it was a lifestyle. What did you say? No secret service Christians? Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of the little boy with the chihuahua. And the man asked him what kind of dog it was. He said, that's a police dog. And that man said, police dog? That doesn't look like any police dog I've ever known before. And the little boy looked up at the man and said, sir, he's in the secret service. <laughs> 